Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Monday, November the 12th, 2012, and this is episode 1018 of the Survival Podcast. It's Monday. Monday's usually listener feedback day. Today is going to be different though. Today I'm going to talk about the Survival Podcast, the Disaster Response Team Initiative, why I'm doing it, how I see it working out, and why I'm not actually the one that's going to be doing it, who will be doing it, how it'll work, and how the vision has crystallized over the last week and a half. And I want to address some concerns of well-meaning people out there who have been a little bit negative on it and explain to everyone uh, how it's going to work and, and basically why it will work and why it will become a premium team that will be able to help people throughout our country in disasters, both small and large. Before I get to that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our housekeeping. Uh, let's start out with our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by supporting the show and helping to make sure that we're here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday. Sponsor of the day number one today, ShelfReliance.com. Notice I said Shelf Reliance, not Self Reliance. ShelfReliance.com provides innovative food storage solutions, i.e. shelving, get it, Shelf Reliance, that allow you to easily eat what you store and store what you eat. From small systems like the consolidator systems that go in your pantry and cupboard and are called things like the pantry and the cupboard, to large systems like My Harvest 72, which can hold about a half a ton of canned food and a relatively small footprint, always allowing you to constantly eat what you store, store what you eat, through automatic rotation of canned goods. Everything from little bitty cans like your tuna fish cans or your uh, tomato paste cans up to great big number 10 cans. And everything in between. Check them out today, shelfreliance.com. When you do, remember the Thrive brand of long-term food storage items. You'll find those there, too. Check it out. Uh, again, shelfreliance.com. Next up today, the Free State Project. Did you know there's a lot of ways you can vote other than just at the ballot box, which is becoming, in my opinion, increasingly a joke. I, I, you know, They have this thing out in California called Proposition 37 that failed miserably, you know, They ask Californians, do you want your food labeled for, you know, to know if there's GMOs in it? And like two weeks before the election, it was polling at like 80% of the people said, yeah, we want to know. And then it, it failed at like 60-40. So we're supposed to believe it swung that far in, in, in a couple weeks. I, I, you know, never been big on the voter fraud thing, folks, but, uh, that, that one has me thinking. But there's other ways we can vote and there's ways we can vote that cannot be corrupted. They can't be changed with uh, an electronic voting box or some other kind of shenanigans or crap or things like that. One is we can vote by how we spend our money. If we spend our money with one company versus another, it's a clear vote and it has a real impact. We can also vote in a republic with our feet. We can vote with a republic with our feet by leaving one state and going to another and saying we think that what's going on here is better for us and our family. That is the foundation of a republic. That's what the people at the Free State Project are doing. You can find out more about them at freestateproject.org. But they're moving people to New Hampshire. And they're doing that for a variety of reasons to try to make New Hampshire the shining star of the republic, the freest state in the nation. They're not there yet, but they've come a long way, and you can help them out, again, by relocating. That's one way you can do it. That's the mission of the Free State Project. But there are those of us who we're just not going to move to New Hampshire. doesn't mean we can't support them. I support them by putting them on the air. They're not my sponsor. I'm theirs. 
I give them a slot that other people pay for for free as part of my philanthropic, uh, philanthropic uh, efforts to try to support causes that I believe in. And that is one of them indeed is the Free State Project. You can support them by going to their events, possibly speaking at them if you're well known, uh, maybe writing for them, maybe contributing money, or maybe becoming part of their mainstay project and committing to moving to New Hampshire. Find out more again at freestateproject.org. Next up, want to let you know, big announcement, kind of a beta pre-launch, but the TSP Gear Shop has returned, yes. Uh, and we have some cool stuff there already. The Every Citizen is the Sentinel shirts. Uh, the TSP uh, original t-shirts with a new Revolution is You logo on the left shoulder. A really cool amp decal. Lots of stuff. Most of the stuff is in pre-order right now. There's a disclaimer telling you how long you might wait. But I will tell you this. If you want this stuff for Christmas, get it ordered now. Uh, and, you know, I've got a really great guy handling the gear shop. Somebody that I think is a little bit more prepared to deal with large-scale orders and large volume than what we had before. Kelly John Doe, who is also behind Survival Gear Bags. And that company is backed by a very large company that does major fulfillment. Uh, this is what they do for a living. So give them a little leeway as they ramp up. These are new items for them. They don't know how kind of volumes we're going to sell. So we do this with a pre-order to get some understanding of what the demand is going to be. And then ramp up. Lots of size options. The hats have different options. Cool stuff. Check it out today, tspgear.com. Also, you can help support this site by going to tspcopper.com and getting some really cool copper medallions. Both of those sites can maybe help you out with some unique gifts for this coming Christmas. And they're both ways you can help support the survivalpodcast.com. You're also helping support Survival Gear Bags, which is one of our sponsors, and the American Open Currency Standard when you do business with TSP Copper, who is fighting for financial liberty. So, Uh, as you can see, I'm really trying to reach out, but I'm trying to do it in a way that helps a lot of people. And I'm bringing that up today because I want you to understand, you know, that's why we're going to do this disaster response team thing as well. You can also support the site, of course, by joining the member support brigade. I'll leave it at that today because I want to get into the main topic of today's show. Um, you know, when I floated this idea, it really hadn't completely crystallized in me. Like a lot of people that are entrepreneurial and kind of will do the details second and the idea first. Uh, I'll throw out an idea, I'll gauge his response, and I'll let it crystallize into a vision from there. And that's where I'm at now, and I'm ready to lay it out. Somebody brought up in the comments section a very long time ago, I did an episode on the concept of a new civilian militia with disaster relief being one of its ideas. At the time, there were about, I don't know, 50 or 60 people listening to the podcast. I had absolutely no reach, and I really didn't have a clear vision of what that would be. It was just an idea, and it was never set up to be an initiative. It was set up to just be an idea, and maybe somebody out there would pick it up and run with it. Maybe they wouldn't. I don't know. And looking back, I don't think it was really the greatest idea in the world. I think that militias have their place, and we know what their place are, and they should stand that way. And uh, disaster relief can be part of what they do. But they're not a dedicated disaster relief organization. They're a militia. They're designed to defend the republic. And uh, I think it's a great place for him, but I don't think it's it's this way. Um, what prompted me to do this was once again watching large relief organizations fail, and, and there's no other way around it. And I want to drive that home with uh, just a little bit of an article that was sent to me today, and it's on U.S. News on NBCNews.com, and it is Red Cross pushes back on Sandy response, calls it near flawless. I'm not even going to read the article. I'll link to it, and you can look it up, and I'm going to give you a little bit of an idea of what the article says and where I agree and where I disagree with what the Red Cross is saying. 
Well, the Red Cross basically says in this article, look, this is a huge disaster. We deployed everything we had, and we've gotten as far as we can with what we have. We can't get to everybody at the same time. We're doing the best we can with what we have. And that I, in some ways, maybe agree with. I don't know if they've really deployed every resource that they have. I kind of doubt it with the amount of money these people take in that there's not more resources, but any disaster organization of this size has to be prepared for another disaster and another concurrent deployment. So I hope they're lying when they say they've deployed everything they have because I hope they do have something in reserve. But to call a response where so many people are sitting here going... I haven't even seen a Red Cross person or truck yet. Flawless. When you're that size, I find a little bit arrogant. And I think that maybe they need to do a little bit more acknowledging of their their limitations rather than defending their failure. But that's neither here nor there. But the reason I even bring it up is I want to stop kicking the Red Cross. Because I'm sure for everything they do wrong, they do a lot right. And I'm sure they help a lot of people. And I'm sure if we put together our disaster response team and we deploy to a disaster, there'll be plenty of people in the middle of that disaster will go, TSP, DRT, never saw them, never heard of them. You know, we'll be much smaller, so our footprint will be even less. And, and that doesn't mean that we're not doing everything that we can to help. But what it does tell me is, even with FEMA, even with the Red Cross, even with having a couple weeks now to get the relief effort going, there's still people waiting for help. People that might have been able to have been helped very early on by a more agile group. Not all of them, but some of them. What that means is there's a hole. There's not enough people and not enough resources that are able to respond in all the ways necessary to deal with a disaster the size of Sandy. And I would tell you that I don't think that there's enough resources and teams prepared to deal with logistically tornado in the middle of the town. And to that, I want to um, read some of you from our comments section here. That came in about uh, what's being called Occupy Sandy, where some of the Occupy protesters have taken it upon themselves to start helping people, and and good for them. But this is a comment on our blog, restating a couple comments at an article on another blog uh, of people that were on the ground and saying what they thought of this uh, this response by Occupy Sandy. Here, here it is. Uh, this is by Tim. Below are a couple of com- interesting comments from the Occupy story posted above. Reinforces the idea of doing this. Quote, I live in a tiny upstate pocket that came through Sandy relatively well. Two volunteer firehouses set up drives and we loaded trucks and cars with food, clothing, supplies, gasoline, and propane. The Red Cross refused our donation, saying they wanted money, not supplies. The FEMA folks told us to dump it until they could decide what to do with it. We gave it to the Occupy Sandy movement, who immediately began distributing it. Okay, now this goes back to the Joplin. This is a different comment. I live in Joplin, Missouri, similar here, except we had people coming in from the four states, Arkansas, Missouri, Kansas, and Oklahoma, with supplies by the truckload, chainsaws, equipment, and more. Most was private from individuals with means, churches, and businesses. FEMA did a good job on other stuff, but they were here days later. Okay, these are two entirely different types of disasters at two entirely different times both showing us the holes in the system. I really have a problem with the Red Cross saying we don't want stuff to help people with, we want money. I'll also take that as a comment on a blog and realize that it could have been someone saying something that wasn't of the authority, but I doubt it. I think this is this is a pretty legitimate view of what's going on. And the reason I set the stage with this isn't to continue to kick these organizations. It's to point out that even when they think they've done a perfect job 
when the director of the Red Cross comes out and says, well, I don't know if it was a director, a, a bigwig at the Red Cross, uh, comes out and says, our response was flawless or near flawless. Okay, she's a spokeswoman. I just want to check in the article real quick and let you know that so I don't say it wrong. Laura Howe, a spokeswoman for the organization, said that responding in badly damaged, densely populated urban areas, a unique cold weather hurricane, both pose significant challenges to getting needed supplies to the hardest hit efforts. She says that her response, the response overall was near flawless. So even when the Red Cross is willing to pat itself publicly on the back and say, we did everything right, there's still people that didn't help. Um, I bet you if you ask a, a member of FEMA right now how they've done, they'll tell you they've done a good job, they've done an adequate job. Maybe they'll tell you it was nearly flawless. And yet there's people still sitting there right now in need of help. So why the disaster response team from the Survival Podcast? Why even have one and why do it now? Well, we're doing it, first of all, because in every disaster that I've ever looked at of any scale at all, there's never been enough responders. There's never been enough resources. There's never been enough responders. So there's a need. We can address it. I'll tell you why I think we can do it better as our own group rather than part of another group in a bit. But that's why. Why now? Because now I believe that we have the size of an audience, the people within the community, And the desire is there, not just for me, but from the community members to do it. That's why now. That's why two years ago, not then. It wasn't like there weren't any disasters. Today, if you go to the show notes and look at today's uh, show notes, you'll see a picture of, of people lying dead in rubble in Galveston from a hurricane in 1900. It's not like disasters are new. It, it just isn't. It's not like these are anything new. Is there anything different about these disasters? There's been disasters going back as long as humans have been here to witness them. There's been humans witnessing and being affected by disasters. The reason the time is now is because now we can do it. Now we're prepared. Now we're ready to get started on the path toward this organization. This will not happen overnight. This will not be something that if something hits in January, we'll be ready for. We won't. It took this long to get to where we had enough critical mass as a community to make it make sense for us to put this together. And now it will probably take the better part of 2013 to truly be deployable. And there may be some big things that happened in 2013 that we're just not ready for. We're just not ready to interact with the other rescuers the right way. But there may be some small things that can be part of our training. And there may be some things that we create for ourselves to respond to that I'll talk about in a bit. But I do believe we need to do this as an individual group. I cannot tell you how, and this is what I want you guys to understand when I respond to something publicly uh, with a blog post like I put out last week about the DRT. And you look at the comments and you go, well, there's not really that many people saying it won't work or it's a bad idea. You don't read my email, okay? For every comment, and this is what I actually want you guys, I prefer that you comment on the blog. Uh, unless it's of a personal nature, because I want it out there for the public to see when it's something like this. But it's not how it works. For every person that goes to the blog and fills out a comment, probably 20 email me with the same or different opinion, but on the same subject. So if you see 20 comments on the blog, that means I've probably gone through 200 emails With probably a similar ratio, if it's 30 against and 60, uh, 74, that's probably what I've gone through is 60, you know, reasons why it's a crazy idea and it won't work. And, you know, um, you know, a hundred and 140 or whatever that says, you know, this is a great idea. I want to be involved. 
So when you see me respond that way, that's that's what I'm talking to. Not you know, there's one guy uh, on the on the blog that got all his panties in a wad and said, "You said you want our opinion, and now you're telling me we're wrong." And uh, you know, dude, chill out. First of all, don't think my response is just to you because it's not. It doesn't just say your name on it that it's not just to you. And second of all, this is something I've always said about the show and the comments that come in by phone, by email, on the blog. You are entitled to your opinion. You are even entitled to have me listen to and consider it only because I've asked you for it. But since I have your entitlement, you are not entitled to dictate how it will be responded to. If you tell me something and I think what you're saying is just being negative or not seeing the forest for the trees or being plain dumb, I will tell you. Okay? But that doesn't mean you weren't heard. So part of that response was why I think we need to do this as a group. And I want to lay that out for a lot of people that don't read the articles and only listen to the show. And I think it's probably better if you hear the inflection in the tone because I believe text is the lowest form of communication. This community is the most amazing group of people I've ever had the pleasure to interact with in my life. Every time we go somewhere and I meet members of this audience and I see you and your children, your, your, your spouses, your friends that you bring along with you, and you talk to me and tell me your stories, I have that reinforced, that this is a special group of people that have something special to give and something special to deliver and unique talents. And I think that, first of all, I don't want to practice the employee mindset with something that's important or a socialism mindset. Let's just all join an existing collective and become part of it and do things the way that it's already being done. That might help a little bit if the Red Cross had more trained volunteers to get out there with them and a little bit more money to buy a little bit more stuff. But there's no way that even if, um, let's say, a thousand TSP members got active with the Red Cross as contributors and volunteers that they could make the impact inside the Red Cross on the ground in a disaster the way that a hundred, just a hundred would getting involved with a TSP disaster response team. If we put a hundred people on the ground as an individual group that does the things that aren't being done, we can do more. And this comes up with a statement that I made in my article, and that is that you do not get to innovation. You do not reach a new level by joining a giant company and being, becoming part of it. You join and you, when you innovate, the way you do that is you start a new company and you go out and you fill the gaps and you do the things that aren't being done or the things that are being held back by existing bureaucracy. Yeah, we'd like to add that feature, but we can't because of the existing code or whatever it is. doesn't matter what sector it's in. It's the new company that comes out and says, you know what? Bullshit. It, there is no limitation. We're not going to be constrained by this. Now, the market will assign certain limitations. We'll say, well, you, you know, there are some limitations. You, you, you can't go, you know, take people's houses and resell them without, you know, buying them first. Well, unless you're a bank, but otherwise you can't do that. So there's legalities, there's, there's interactions, but there's always within the top level limitations, all these self-imposed limitations by organizations. And the bigger they get, and the more that they ingrain themselves with other groups, the more limitations they have. And that's why you go up to the Red Cross and go, we've got soup here, we've got, we've got gasoline, we've got baby diapers. And they go, well, we want money. Because maybe there's a limitation that logistically prevents them or somehow harms their ability to help someone else if they take that in that form. Maybe there's, I don't know, but I don't want that limitation. So I'm not going to have it. The reason we have to do this on our own is twofold. One, because the fact that there's people that still need help tells me that there's gaps. And we can best fill those gaps by coming in with the intention of doing what's not being done. And two, because this group is so damn special that we don't need to constrain it. 
with those self-imposed limitations of existing groups. Again, I'm not talking about getting out there like a left-end wing nut and, and just running around and doing things with no control, no organization, and no concerns for safety and getting in the way of other responders. We'll get to how we're going to organize that so that that doesn't happen in a second. But I am talking about if there's somebody sitting over there hungry and I'm telling the Red Cross, here's food, and they go, we want money, taking the food to the hungry person and giving it to them. All right, And I'm talking about doing it in a way that's much more effective than some of the relief efforts that are going on now with small private groups. But I think we need to do this as a group. Um, I also want you to know I am not going to run this group, and I, I think that maybe people don't even really understand what I really mean when I say that. I mean that once this thing gets up and moving and the structure is put together today, And I get this, and part of why I'm doing this podcast is to let you, the community, know what's going on. But I also have a group of people already that said, I want to stand up. I want to be part of the leadership team. I want to help organize this. I was looking for at least one. We've got a half a dozen or more people with real experience, people that have served as incident commanders, people that have been members of police forces, people that have been members of search and rescue teams that want to stand up and do this. And part of this episode today is so I can get this off my table and focus on the show and other things and be with you guys as a responder, not the controller of this group. I am not qualified. That's, that's one of the big reasons. I am not qualified to, to, to write out the, the operations manual, the training manual, and set the certifications that are required to be a team member. And to say maybe we have a team member that's, you know, there's a minimum requirement and maybe there's advancement within the team. Like you're a team member, uh, a team member two, a team member three. I don't know what, however that's going to, I'm not qualified to do that. And I don't have the time to make myself qualified to do that. And I don't have 20 years of incident commander uh, experience behind me. And I don't have all of that. You know, I've already learned about things like how small groups that do exactly what we want to do can use things like NIMS and, and be there and communicate with the larger groups like FEMA and thereby garner respect and garner a sense of legitimacy just by doing it. I didn't even know you could do that, right? So I'm not qualified to do it. So that's one of the main reasons I'll be an advisor when it comes to the vision and the ethics and the morality and the primary mission of the DRT, but I will not set the standards. I got people emailing me, you have to do this, you need to do this. don't give me that shit. I don't have to do nothing. I have to set the vision and put professionals that know what they're doing in charge and then have enough sense to do the other reason I'm doing it. I believe I'm a very good leader. I, I you know, cringe at using the word great when talking about myself, but I would say that when it comes to leadership, I'm pretty gifted. And great leaders know That when you assemble the right team, you've identified the right team, the next step is get the hell out of their way and let them lead. And let them take your vision and the mission you've given them and shape it in the way that best suits the, the components of the world that you do not understand. There are so many people that are so concerned with controlling everything that they back or have their name on that they do 20 things terribly instead of really controlling and doing one or two things right and spawning 20 or 30 more things that they push and back with philanthropy, with, with, with clout, with social capital, with whatever it is, and letting it be what it can be. Just keep an eye on it and see if it starts to go off the path. Pulling the leaders back together and go, why are we doing this? Explain it to me. If you can't explain it to me, you can't explain it to the people on the other end of this. 
So explain it to me, and if it makes sense, and you can't explain it to the larger group, I have that communications ability, I'll explain it for you. All right? So I'm letting my credibility, my social capital, my financial capital, my philanthropy to the DRT, developing a vision and setting a tone and an expectation and then finding the right professionals to put in charge of it and saying, now you guys know what you're doing better than I do, go. That's leadership. And that's why all this bullshit that I'm hearing from people like, but, but you'll get in the way or, you know, you don't have enough training or they won't respect you is all just, it's just moot. All right? Understand that at one time, every major relief organization that exists today that you're saying we should join or be part of or partner with or support or whatever was nothing but one person with an idea. Every single one of them, every single one started out with one person that said, this is what, this is what's missing now. And let's go to, and they've done great things, including the Red Cross. And the way you continue the advancement is to continue the innovation by the creation of people that say they've done all of this and all of this still hasn't been done and this is how we're going to do it. But we also have to fit in. We can't be in the middle of a disaster cutting down trees and pitching them out into an area we think is clear where, you know, they are planning to bring relief trucks in on a larger effort and we're actually create, we can't do that. Right? And people say, well, you're going to do that. No, we're not going to do that because we're going to have professionals that set a standard and expectation. They're also going to set something that I have ideas for, but I'm going to give them the freedom to do it. I just want to understand why they're going to set this, the, the goals there, which is minimum level of skills, training, and certification required to be part of the DRT. I have a lot of people emailing me. The absolute minimum should be first aid training and CPR training. You can go get it for free from Red Cross. Sounds good to me. Sounds good to me. But I don't know if it's the main purpose of the DRT to be out providing first aid and CPR. Yeah, it might look good on a credential. Maybe it's so much so that it's worth saying that all of our people have, you know, at a minimum uh, certification, and that's on that list of minimum certifications. It's good for everybody to know anyway. It allows you to help. You never know if you're in a disaster situation. Even if you're not there primarily as a medical responder, you never know when that's going to be required. No citizen knows that. That's probably why everybody should have it anyway. So does it go on the list? Maybe. But I don't see DRT primarily being a group that starts pulling rubble apart and looking for survivors and then patching them up. In many instances, that role is being fairly well done. In many instances, it's not. That's why I'm not saying it's, one, it's a role or not. I don't know. I know that when I originally conceived of it, I see it as a place where we can get supplies to people that need them. People that are without. There's a lot of people, they're not dying, they're not bleeding to death, they're cold or they're hot, they're hungry, they have no food, no way to prepare things, and they need help. And those, a lot of those people are at least able to move across the street or down a block where a, a group can stage to help people in that situation that aren't in the need of immediate critical care. Does DRT grow into a team that does multiple disciplines? One of the things being pulling in with ham radio equipment and helping us set up a comm net. There's already ham guys that do that. Would it hurt to have more? Probably not. The, you know, where does the line get drawn? What is the core critical mission? My vision of the mission is to fill in gaps and help people that are currently going too long uh, without help that we can help. We can't help everybody, but we can help some people. And then how that gets formatted, though, that goes to the leadership council, the team of honchos. right? And who's going to be the top honcho of the team of honchos? The team of honchos will figure it out. I won't say who it is. I'm not going to. And you can look at this in a microcosm of two other things 
that we've done here that have become amazing things because I'm smart enough to get my ass out of the way. The Survival Podcast Forum. There is no place on the internet like the Survival Podcast Forum. There's no place that's as welcoming to new people, as well run, as fair, and as tightly policed based on its own terms of service, which is our Constitution. See, I set up the terms of service, and I let the the moderators together amend it as they choose as a team. So I set the original terms, and I said, you guys go ahead and go from here. All right? They decide when they bring in a new moderator. They decide when one of them is like, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. But you have people that complain about the way the forum is run, but you can't have anybody who says, I'm complaining about it, and point to the terms of service where their community rights were violated in conflict with the terms of service because the terms of service stands as the, as the Constitution. It's there. It's posted for everybody. And that's the way we run it. I don't know if a group is diverse, and with as many people that come in and become part of it that were not already in kind of the, the whole genre yet. You know, there's so many people that are part of the Survival Podcast community and then extended into the forum that never really thought about prepping or survivalism, haven't been doing it, you know, since, you know, since the very first survivalist crawled out from under a rock or whatever. There were people that didn't even use the word three years ago. They're not pulled in from somebody else's forum. That's because I put together a really great team of leaders, recognized their leadership, and got out of the way and let them. They wanted to really dedicate themselves to that project. Where I wanted to dedicate myself to excellence in education, entertainment, and broadcasting for you guys. So instead of trying to tightly control it, I let them control it. And it's worked beautifully. A more recent development is the Zello channel. If you want to, go to Zello.com and get your get the Zello app for your phone or your computer or whatever. And then add the Survival Podcast channel to uh, to your channel list and become a member of our channel and start talking to other members of the community. Whole group of people there. Moderating the channel, controlling the channel, developing the channel. Put it together like six months ago. Guess what, guys? It's so successful that the president and technical team of Zello are meeting with our moderators to improve the Zello platform because it's the most successful thing on Zello. Most active channel, the best run channel, right? Why? Because I'm not on there every day telling them how to run it. Right? I like the idea. I get on there once in a while and talk with people in chat. I'm kind of an occasional user. I don't set any standards when they say, well, we want to do this or what. Do whatever you want. Do, do whatever you want. This is, you are the leadership team here. Now, something like DRT needs a more professional, more engaged leadership team because it's a lot more work, but it's still the same model. And that's why I'm going to stay the heck out of the way and let decisions like what classes need to be taken. What certifications need to be taken for a person to be at least a member? And we say this person is now deployable and we can go to a local law enforcement organization when there's a tornado in a small town that FEMA doesn't even give a damn about, which is probably some of the first types of things we should be looking to do. And when he says, how do you know that these guys are going to be safe, know what they're doing, actually help, and they're not coming here to loot us? Here's our operations manual. Here's our vetting process. Here's our verification process. And I'll, I'll talk more about that in a bit. But immediate confidence and hopefully having a liaison doing that before the main team is even on the ground there. That is the type of thing that we want to do. But I've got to leave that to people that know what to do. One guy emailed me and said, you're not a professional disaster responder. This is above your head. My response was, no crap, it's above my head. Why do you think I'm not in control of it? See, this is, this is a lesson in leadership today. 
A lot of you guys have great initiatives, great ideas, great things that you want to accomplish. If you get it rolling and you get a leadership team in place and they can do the job better than you, let them lead. Now, I do think we are going to have to come up with some kind of an operations manual so that everybody's literally on the same page. How an incident commander, because we're going to have to have our own incident commanders, kind of the, the honcho on site, how they interact with uh, a national coordinator or a regional coordinator. I don't want to do regional groups. I don't want to have a southwest, a northwest region, stuff like that. I want to have immediately assemblable groups based on skill sets, needs, and availability. In other words, if you have, let's say, a south-central and a southeast group, and Texas is in the south-central and so is Louisiana, but Alabama is part of the southeast group along with Florida, and I've got a guy in Jacksonville, Florida, and there's a disaster in Louisiana, and his his uh, he says on his own profile, my response range is 900 miles. I want the guy from Jacksonville coming to Louisiana. It might take him longer to get there, depending on the size of the disaster and his, his deployment time, we might tell them not to come, but I want them available. I don't want a hard set region. That's one of the things I'm giving to uh, the, the, the honcho team. I don't want that. I want a person to say, odds of me being able to deploy within you know 12 to 24 hours notice, 50%. And I want the guy to be honest about that based on what kind of job he has, what kind of flexibility he has, or 90% or 100% or 10%. Distance I am willing to deploy. 100 miles, 1,000 miles, anything in between, 2,000, anything, whatever it is. What I, what I, you know, what I currently have is, a, is the ability uh, to, to deliver supplies. Do I have a truck? Do I have a trailer? Do I have backup power capability? I want us to know the capability of all of our members with one check. I want to be able to say, you know, I want to be able to, and, and we've got a guy named uh, Metaforge on the forum. Chips is a uh, real first name as far as I know. says, I'll do the data, database development of this. This is a professional database developer. So that a, that a national coordinator can see everybody's perspective available, available for the disaster, hit all of them and start immediately getting responses, assembling teams, who's available, what their time on to, to site is, what they're going to be able to do. This is, this is something that's not being done. This is not being done this way. This is not how the large-scale organizations deploy. Because they have people that are full-time, that they can put a region together and they pull in the extra region and there's this bureaucracy and all. This is volunteer on demand, right? Who's available? Who can get there? Who can talk to their boss and say, look, I'm part of this thing. I want to go help out. I need four days. And that guy's going to go, go ahead and sometimes the guy's going to go, I can't do it for you right now. But being able to make the best use of what's available, that's important. And that has to all be outlined in the operations manual so that when a national commander says the on-site commander for this mission is Joe Blow, that's who it is when you get there and you know that and you follow his directions because he's the one communicating with the other people. And that the structure of the on-site unit, whether if they're squad leaders or what have you, and however this is outlined, that's what we do, is all under the discretion of the incident commander, and that change is only made by the incident commander himself if he wants to step down and put somebody else in place, or the national coordinator. This is very military in its flow, but very, and this is why I brought the term militia into it. It's not a militia, but it's militia-like, in that the responder only is under no obligation to respond. It's voluntary service. And the leadership is internally elected and respected. It's very, very similar to the way the original Continental Militias worked. Citizens helping citizens by choice, not by requirement. Not because it's their job, because they want to. And they're willing to sacrifice to do so.
And that manual needs to be available to anybody that comes up and says, we want to know what you guys do, how you do it. We want to make sure that this is legitimate. Here you go. And we also want to make sure that, especially in smaller disasters, you know, where, where you got a county sheriff's department or something, and here's these people showing up from out of town that say they're there to help. How can they vet you? How can they say, you know, you, how do you guys know that these guys are all good guys? How, do, how What kind of training do they have? What kind of background do they have? I see every person with a name tag around their neck. And on that name tag is a, is it a responder number, a certification number, whatever. And I see a, 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 a law enforcement officer being able to pull up a smartphone as long as there's a connection to the Internet somehow. TSPDRT.com. I already have the domain, by the way. And check on a responder. Stick their number in, what have you, however we decide to do that, whatever's easiest for Chip. And boom, there's his picture. There's his skill set. There's when he joined. There's where he's from. There's how deployable he is. There's all the ways he can help you. Right? And a person that goes, well, I don't want that much information available about me. Well, it would only be available with your number. And if you don't want any information at all available about you, then this is not for you. This is not something under the carpet, under the rug. It can't be. It has to be on the surface. It has to be completely up front. This may mean things like we may have to have criminal background checks on people. And we have to, I may have to say that somebody's got a felony can't be part of this. I have a problem with that. Maybe we don't. I don't. Honchos. Honchos. I would say at a minimum, from my view, somebody had a felony that's violent out. Nonviolent felony. Served all their time. Served all their probation parole. Completely free and clear of it. I don't know that I want to tell that person don't help when they want to help. But maybe for this to be above board, that has to be there. I don't know. Honcho team makes that decision. And any decision like it, anywhere. But what if? Then you take all this stuff together, you take actual responders who've actually done it and said, would this matter to me in this situation? Especially if I'm being told about it before a disaster. Because I see once this thing is really ready to go, we've mustered, we've drilled, we've performed, we know we can do it, we know what our capabilities are, we know what our mission is, contacting multiple organizations all over the United States saying, not only are we here, this is how you tell us you need us. And vet us in advance. Here's what we've done, here's how we're doing it, here's how we're organized, here's how we come in, here's how we help, here's how we stay out of your way, here's how you communicate with us, here's our national coordination team. Here's our operations manual. Here's how many people we have on our force. Here's how many people deployable to your area. Here's how you can check as that changes. All right? And those that think that like this is just some idea to load up a busload of people and show up with work gloves and shovels and that we're going to be in the way, you've severely underestimated the vision of this project. Severely. Absolutely severely underestimated it. And I think that one of the ways we can really excel is to provide the most needed items in an on-demand fashion. One of the beautiful things about not having it regional, not having staging warehouses, having, yes, a straight-up 501c3 not-for-profit organization that people can donate money to for relief efforts, and having an instant commander with a company credit card on the phone and being able to talk to Jim who's on his way to Georgia from Florida before he gets into that ring around the disaster where it's hard to get supplies and being able to talk to an incident commander on the ground and say the biggest need that we have right now that nobody's showing up with are diapers and formula so that Jim can pull over at a Costco or a Sam's Club in Jacksonville, Florida, load up in route 
with the most needed item and show up. And as other members are coming in from all different areas at all different response times, what was a weakness is now a strength because as the situation on the ground changes, as the responders begin to respond, the conventional responders that are bringing in all the expected things, and there are still things in short supply, procurement on the way in is adapting in real time to the situation on the ground. Talk about underestimating me. I'm telling you, some of you guys have severely underestimated the vision for this thing. I don't know if, and maybe there's somebody doing that. If great, if they are, great. You know what you tell me? Not, why don't we partner with them? Tell me who they are so we can look at them and see what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong, and we'll do it too, and we'll do it better. Or we'll do it slightly different. Or we'll see what's hurting them, what's hampering them, so we can avoid it. Because it's easier to build a system from the ground up and not have hampered problems than it is to change one that's already in place. Ask any computer programmer, they'll tell you the same thing. And that's how we're going to make that happen. And I can tell you there's real-time stuff going on right now like this. Right now, now that the big responders have gotten in and they're starting to really help these people with Sandy, you know what's happening? There's tons of canned goods of people going... I, I don't really need that. People are going, what do you mean you don't need that? Well, it's, it's a can of green beans. I don't have electricity or a way to cook. But somebody sitting doling out hot meals, that's really needed. That's really needed. So there's so many times, and that situation will continue to evolve and change. I also kind of see us as a short-term solution. That once the real heavy initiative is underway... Once the kind of that critical immediate need has been met, we back off or move into the area still not being helped because they're considered too small. See, that's what I think a lot of people don't get. There's two areas where people don't get help. One, it's too dangerous or too difficult to get assistance in yet, and we probably don't need to be messing around with that. But there's another concept. I have 5,000 people over here without power, Without water, without fuel, and without food. I've got a little pocket of 50 over here. And then I've got this little pocket of 10 over here. 5,000 first. Maybe I can spare one or two guys for the 50. The 20 have to wait it out. Because the needs of many outweigh the needs of the one or the few. For you Star Trek fans. Okay? We can go where the 20 are. We, as soon as it's identified, and as soon as it's like you guys are in a way here, or we don't really need this now, or, or what have you, great. Goodbye. We'll go there. We'll go where the assistance is needed. I've had people emailing me, well, sometimes I've seen this happening, like 20 people show up, or 50 people show up, or 100 people show up, and they create a traffic jam. Please understand that we can figure out how not to do that. That we are all intelligent individuals with a brain that would recognize that in a volunteer situation, in an organized structure like a disaster response team, that there are people in control and people in charge to coordinate and determine these things, and determine things like, okay, you know what, maybe what we're doing today, because all this other food and water and stuff has been met in this area, is we're taking chainsaws in and clearing out streets that are still not cleared out. Power companies got the power shut off or got the power out of the way and picked up whatever they needed to to get power back on in this area or at least get a, because you can't go in there and start cutting trees when they're down on, you know, hot power lines or power lines that might be hot and you don't know yet. But that's been done. And this area is not getting a, a huge relief effort. 
And maybe we're going to do that, but maybe if there's 50 people ready to do that, that most of the vehicles are staged off-site, somebody's left around for security of the vehicles, and people pile in until they're on top of each other, so you're bringing as few vehicles in as possible. Or maybe you're shuttling. Yeah, we can figure this out. We're not a bunch of... Some of the people that have responded to this make it out like we're a bunch of retards that can't find our own rear. And I wonder if you've listened to this show and watched this community grow at all or if you've just showed up now because you heard about this and don't like it. It really it, it bugs me that you think that like they're... Or that you're just so locked into the establishment that it's hard for you to accept that someone can come in and actually find a better way to do things. Well, if you're that person, you need to listen to the theme song of the show. It, this entire community is about a better way to do things in good times and bad. And we, this, is, this is the type of thing we need to do. I also think that we need to really, as we get started up, we get an outline. We get a, you know, a requirement of, you know, what courses you have to take or a certification. That all starts to shape up. That's when I really, you know, a lot of you guys have emailed me and said, let me know when I can volunteer. Well, don't expect to hear back from me on that, really. I mean, it's such a fragmented thing right now that once the, once this is ready to go and we have TSPDRT up, we'll communicate through that. And you'll be able to go there and register as, as someone and say, you know, I'm going to start completing my requirements. Well, I think that once you're on there at all and you've been whatever initial vetting we have for you, you know, and I, you know, I know of groups that require a criminal background check and you can get that done through your state police department. It's usually 15 to 25 bucks and they make the members that need it pay for their own and have it sent to them. So, I mean, if there's something like that, we can, I don't know that we need to do that. I, again, the honchos. But whatever it is, once you're kind of past that, just like, okay, this is not some guy that's dealing crack out of his attic, um, you know, or something like that. And, and you're part, so now you can be part of drills, uh, musters, and, and, and non-emergency responses so that we can start getting the team together to coordinate. So some things that we might do would be to simply communicate with a town that has a fairly large homeless population. Let's go spend one day feeding homeless people. That's a pretty easy thing to do. Doesn't sound like a disaster response. In some ways it is, because the fact that there's starving people in this country is a disaster. But in other ways it's not. There's not power lines coming down. FEMA's not in the way. Nobody's there to get mad. But the group starts to get a chance. And maybe one of the things before you go on disaster response is you've, you've participated in at least one non-emergency response. That might be a great idea. Honchos make that decision. Maybe if you're someone that's already a veteran responder that's been doing it your whole life, you get a, a pass on that. But I, I still think there's tremendous value in it because you start to learn how the group itself functions. You know, Maybe there's a basic, like a social muster, where we start doing some just campgrounds. Just go camping together. What does that have to do with disaster response? You got to get there with your gear. You got to talk to each other. You meet each other face to face. You learn the community. You can do all types of training there. Communications, deployment, procurement, assistance, skills training, but it's the group that will actually be on the ground. That's kind of another thing that I see that we can do. And maybe, you know, just basic, um, just basic drill. You know, we're going to just drill and see how many people can pull it off. How many people could just get to a place to meet with each other? Or, and maybe that's where the regional component begins to come in. That we start running those regionally because you can't be so much telling your boss, I need to go for four days to train for something that's in a non-official capacity and there's not actually a disaster. And, and the distance starts to impair that. 
But if we start having regional components for the musters, the drills, and the non-disaster responses, then we can bring in larger body counts on a deploy radius zone. And then there's people that would tell you, you know what, I work for myself, I can do this a few times a year, even in a non-disaster response, I'll go anywhere. And those are hugely valuable people because they start breeding the cross patterns between the multiple regional things. But this is, you know, this is how we can do this and ramp the group up and actually get through 2013 and maybe even make it part of the 13 and 13 skills challenge that some of the things you need here apply over there toward your skill development and actually congel this group into something special. You know? And that's, you know, where my thought is. You know, some of the primary concepts I have for what the group will actually do is mostly on the supply side. Um, again, I've said before, you know, if we have trained EMTs that will be part of this, and I'm sure we will, and there's a medical need, then we should be there to help with that. But I think, like, the core focus is people need food, water, blankets, you know, energy. And I think we can do stuff like that. I think we can get in and help people communicate that have no means of communication with the outside world. Uh, and these are things that can be done without necessarily being dead in the middle where utility workers are worried about shutting off power lines and trees that are leaning up against telephone poles and, and flooding is active and all. And the, and the, you know, the FEMA people are saying, you guys don't belong here. These things can be set up more of a peripheral thing with an understanding of the inflow and outflow of current supplies and, again, this real-time adjustment. That's what I kind of see being the primary goal, and that's what I want the honchos to build it around. And if it expands beyond that, fine, but we got to start somewhere. You know, when I used to develop companies, that we would start talking about product development. We'd have an initial product, a software product or whatever that was going to be developed. And we start talking about the marketing, the message, the core development, the people that were going to be hired to do the work, and then all of the visionary people that were, you know, unfocused would say, well, we don't want to limit this. One day we might want a product that does that. Or it doesn't matter what you want eventually. You have to start with the core and build the core and expand from the core. And then the marketplace will tell you where to expand into. And in this case, the marketplace is the existing emergency response and the people that are getting it and not getting it. Those two sides. You have to fit in with FEMA. You have to fit in with the Red Cross. You have to fit in with the larger scale organizations. You have to fit in with local law enforcement. You have to play as much as possible by their rules. But yet you have to find the gaps and fill them in and do it in a helpful manner to both the customer who is the, the person who has been affected by the disaster, and the client, who is the existing disaster, disaster responder. That's how this has to be. And that's to start from somewhere. And those are the, that's the primary mission, and I'm talking more to the honcho team now than I am to the audience, audience as a whole. That's where I want it started. You can branch off into a point where we have people, you know, uh, rebuilding houses if you want to, but I want to initially start with let's, let's feed the hungry, let's clothe the cold, let's comfort the people that are upset and just need someone to help them out and talk to. Let's make sure they can call their relatives. Let's do that, that initial acute response. Let's get that done. And then we can grow from there. And I want to finish up with a little bit about those saying why we shouldn't do it, why we can't do it, liability this, blah, 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 that. There's an old saying I've always loved. Those that say something can't be done should get out of the way of those already doing it. 
If you have concerns and you see a problem, but yet you have a solution, I'm interested in hearing from you. And I'm interested in you taking that information and providing it to a team that will build this and letting them decide whether you're right or not about it. If you just want to tell me that it won't work or it can't work or you think, well, Luke's uh, old lady said I'm probably on a watch list or whatever, I, I, you know, I don't have time. I don't have time to hear about why something can't be done. Because let me tell you something about my life. If I had not done everything that somebody told me couldn't be done, I would have accomplished absolutely nothing in my life. You know what you can't do? You can't get three jobs in a row that require a college degree without a college degree. Check. Done. You know what you can't do? You can't build a full-time business with a $35 MP3 recorder and a busted-ass Plantronics headset, driving around in a jetty yelling at ass clowns and being yourself 100% of the time and never compromising anything, including things that will cost you in your initial stages because you want to build it based on the integrity of who you are, not the integrity of what somebody else believes it needs to be done. That can't be done. Check the box. Done. Okay, And I, I don't want to turn this into a thing about me because there's plenty of other explanations and, and stories like that out there. But there's plenty of stuff that I've heard over and over couldn't be done and got done. And they get done because somebody stands up and says, we're going to do this. And everybody that tells the person you can't do it because then continues to talk, and the person doing it after because hears blah, 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 yammer, yammer, blah, 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 blah. If that person's a good leader, occasionally they hear one or two words in the blah, blah, blah that are, you know, that might be valid. And then you develop a team and say, how do we address this? And then you trust professionals who have addressed this issue before to do what they've always done, behave professionally, and address the issue in a professional manner. Then you empower them to do what needs to be done, you respect their decisions, you follow their lead, and you support their choices, and as the, the, the catalyst for change, you communicate that information to the general audience, because many times the people that can do that type of thing are not the best at turning it back around and explaining it to people that don't understand it. So you use your talents to support the people you empower. And mine is communication. Sometimes in a way that people don't like to hear. And I'm probably not the guy to talk to the press at certain times. Because I'll tell them to shove their microphones up their fourth point of contact. You military types know what that means. Some of you non-military types by this point know what that means as well. Or you've inferred it from our old friend Context Clue. And this is it. This is what we're going to do. And let me kind of give take you through the stages of the vision of how I see this progressing. I see by the end of this week... Um, a small team put together that begins to ferret this out and determine this and talk to each other. I see this team becoming very, very good friends, even if they don't see each other personally for quite a while until we get further down the road face-to-face. -face. I see them having conference calls, talking to each other, using, and if there's anything I can give to help give them to help them communicate better, I will provide it to them. I see them developing a, a table of operations, right, like we had in the military. This is what we're going to have. This is what, what responders are going to have to bring to the table. This is their requirements. This is their goal. This is our first scheduled muster, our first scheduled training. It's probably nothing but a, camp, a camping uh, experiment, just getting together and, and meeting each other and starting to talk and provide some initial training. And I see maybe setting up several of those regionally so that people could get to them no matter where they're from if they're serious about this. I see a team of volunteers starting to, 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 uh, to grow out of that 
And I see the entire vision shifting to match the community as the community begins to populate the system. Right? So instead of a rigorous system that's unyielding, as we start to determine the talents of the individuals, the capabilities of the individuals, and the willingness of the individuals to participate, and what the individuals want to bring to the table with them, that organization begins to flow. I see within six months us being able to say, okay, we're going to pick six or seven cities, and we're going to go feed people in those cities to learn from that experience. We're going to deploy as though it's a disaster, but our mission is going to just be feed people that are hungry every day, to maybe clothe some people that are, to, to be more of a charity type response. And I think we'll continue to do that as a training exercise and as a valid way to help other people. And I see us by the end of 2013 being a full-fledged organization that can deploy into a disaster site and begin to provide relief before the big boys come. And as we go from there, I see us growing and developing and continuing to improve. That's the way I see this happening. This is not going to be flip a light switch and it just happens. But I think that's totally reasonable. And I think that as, as the entire community grows, so does the number of people we have to pull from. So some of my contribution is the more I can do with Survival Podcast, the more I can feed into the DRT, the more I can feed into 13 Skills. See, I, guys, I hope people understand. I'm not in this just to make a buck. I don't want to be financially unsuccessful. That's really a sucky way to live. That's not part of being well-prepared. Well-prepared means also having some real wealth. But I don't want any financial gain from DRT at all. None. I don't see any salaries existing there at all in the first place. Really don't. Maybe some things to stifle the national coordinators during a disaster when they have to give up income. I don't know. Again, we have to figure this out. But I don't see any full-time salary people. Certainly not me. I don't see me ever taking a dime. I see me putting a lot in. I'm, I'm looking more and more at my past and realizing that I didn't start making a difference in the world until I started really doing this, other than you know in the lives of maybe my family and my friends, that really a big impact didn't start until the first time I got in the car and started doing this show. And now I have a lot of ability to reach people. I have a lot of social capital. And then I believe that when you're gifted with something, then you're called upon to do something with it. And it doesn't matter how that gift came to you, but when, when you realize that it's there, you have to start thinking about a legacy. And you start, start to have to think about something you know, like, I'm a mortal human being and someday I'll be dead. I'll be gone. Either because tomorrow morning a gravel hauler will run me over because I'll live to be an old man and one night die in my sleep at about 102 years of age without knowing I'm going to be dead tomorrow and anything in between. And that if I don't do something concrete with these gifts that I've been given, the day that I'm dead, it all is gone. Or the day I become infirm, or the day I become injured and can no longer continue, it is all gone. And that is a wasting of my gift. I had a commander in the military that I didn't know very well because I went to his unit, uh, and he almost immediately gave up his command to another commander. Basically, he got promoted, and when you hear what he told us as he left, you'll know why. I've told this story before, but I'll tell it again today because I think it can help set the tone for what we're doing with DRT uh, beyond, you know, exactly how it gets done. He stood in front of a formation, and he, he talked a bit about 
his time there and getting to know the men and how things had gone on and things that really I wasn't listening to because I didn't feel that I was part of them. I had been in this unit at this point for about six days, if I remember, five or six days. I didn't even really know the guy's name because they already told me who the new commander was going to be, and I was more interested in that than the guy that was you know, on his way out the door. And then he said something that caught my attention. He said, I want to leave you with a thought. All of you have come here to do something. Some of you are here for a job. Some of you are here for a mission. Some of you are here for college money. But all of you were willing to do something the average person wasn't and do a little bit more than that. Because you could have found a job another way. You could, have, you could have found a different mission in life. You could have found many things you could have found, uh, what you found here. But what you couldn't have been here, uh, been, been anywhere but in a place like this, is part of something truly truly unique, and that you've pledged to defend your nation, no matter where you're sent, no matter what you're asked to do. Some of you will be here for a couple of years and go on your way. Some of you will be here until you're old men and lead other men. And eventually, you may even be here so long that they tell you not only are you eligible for retirement, but the time has come for you to retire. But no matter what, most of you will one day take this uniform off and you will go into the real world. But hopefully you will bring this spirit with you when you do. And what I want you to think about, and I want you to understand, is that every one of you is going to walk through life until the day that you die. And all of us will die. And when you die, they'll put you in the ground, and they'll stick a stone over your head. They'll put a name, and maybe a little phrase or a little saying to go along with that. And then they'll put two numbers. The day you were born day you died, in the middle, the middle will be a dash, a hyphen. That hyphen is you. Do something with it. And he left. Amazing, amazing commander. Amazing commander that as he was leaving his unit and being promoted, was being promoted to major, and a major I would have been pr proud to serve under, and I bet you he kept on going. I bet you that man at least became a colonel in the military at some point. Um kind of leader you want to serve under. Heard that, 19 years old. Never forgot it, never will. We'll tell the story probably if I'm still talking on my deathbed to somebody to pass it on. This is something I can do with my hyphen. And those of you that want to be part of it, something you can do with yours. There's not a lot of real opportunities out there to truly make a change for the better to truly help somebody in a way that's not just an immediate response, but something that builds. Every great group out there today involved in this started out as an idea, including the Red Cross, every single one of them. And every single one of them is a bit different and brings something different to the table because a legacy was started that people became part of. We have a much greater goal than just helping a few people out. We're going to build something really special. And I already know that some of the true leaders have already responded and said I'll be part of it. I know that more will come along. I know this vision will turn into something that probably won't look exactly like I had in mind when it started, but the spirit and the heart of it will be there. And it's something that I'll leave behind so that my dash has a meaning. That's how important this is to me.
And I'm hoping there's enough of you out there that feel the same way. Share that leadership and that vision with you. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life when times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares, they're living